It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Scano Sego Ani Bojo Kwekwe Tansi, and welcome to Moment of Truth. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. I'm your host, David Moses. A bit of a special um, sort of show for the first half of our uh, presentation today. I had the pleasure of going out on the road and interviewing some people for a new play that is opening. In fact, it's uh, being remounted after about 30 years. Almighty Voice and His Wife, written by Daniel David Moses. And yes, uh, he is a cousin. Don't know how we both ended up with names so close together, but in any case, he is the uh, playwright for Almighty Voice and His Wife. I had the pleasure of actually interviewing and speaking with him for the first time professionally, as well as some of the other people involved with the show. It is on at the Soul Pepper Theatre, that is at 50 Tank House Lane, and that's in the Distillery District of Toronto. It's running from today, October 17th, until November the 10th. And uh, I also had the pleasure of speaking with uh, Janie Lazan. She is the director, interestingly enough. She's also the person that had the role uh, some 30 years ago, and we had a chance to speak with her as well as one of the characters uh, in the play, uh, James Della Smith. You just call him JD. Anyway, you can listen to uh, that interview coming up right now. And this is uh, I went out to the theater, had a chance to see part of the presentation and talk with Daniel David Moses. Janie Lazon and James Dallas Smith, or JD for short. Hope you enjoy it. Also, stick around because immediately following, we have uh, another interview with Margaret Gagnier, and she is here to talk about Minuin, a show that is coming from uh, British Columbia. So stick around for that right after this interview. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy. So I'm now speaking with the the creator of Almighty Voice and his wife, Daniel David Moses. And it's a pleasure to finally have this opportunity, Daniel, to sit down and speak with you in this capacity uh, as two professionals in, in this area. You're, uh, I, I always remember hearing about Almighty Voice and his wife, and I remember hearing about you um, writing this and your writing ability. It's always been, uh, you've always been uh, in my mind, uh, and I remember hearing that, that you've always been a, a playwright that is worthy uh, to check out and know. Your, your name is known in the industry. Almighty Voice and His Wife. Earlier when you were talking about this, you talked about how what you didn't want to write anymore, and that when you were thinking of this, when you finally sat down, the, the, the play sort of, I guess, wrote itself in, in a couple of weeks. Um, can you take me back to that and, and why, how you found the story and, and why you felt it was important for you to write it? Well, it was a story that puzzled me when I, I first came across it. Um, this was, I guess, my first year after university. I was working at the Woodland Cultural Center as the researcher in the library. Uh, we still did things by paper and mail. By then, someone had written a letter asking for information about Almighty Voice. I didn't know anything, but in our library, I must have found six or seven different versions of the story with, within like a couple hours. Uh, and when I read it, I just didn't understand why it had happened. So I, I realized that my um, my ignoring of history, uh, I felt like I'd been very sheltered from history uh, by my family and growing up on Six Nations. Um, 
I mean, it wasn't until I was an adult that I, 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 I realized that my grandmother had been in the Mohawk, the Mosh Hole. Um, so so that I, I, started, I started investigating and tried to place when the story happened uh, and where in the history of Canada. And I realized it was after, just after the Real Rebellion. And that, that kind of explained a lot of like, why things were so bad for, for the characters. Um, and I, I just, um, but, but the story began, began to obsess me. Um, most of the versions in the mainstream of the story were the story of a renegade Indian. And it ends badly. <laughs> Uh, I was resisting uh, telling a tragic story. Uh, I, I had been looking at Greek tragedies, and they talked about Greek tragedies as, as, as a mechanism to maintain stability in a culture. Um, and and I, I thought, no, I, I don't want to keep doing the same darn thing where the Indian ends up dead. I... I, I, I want to write a story where, where, you know, you can find human joy. So I, it took me a while to figure it out. And, and was it sort of an aha moment for you when it finally came to you, and then it, it just sort of wrote itself after that? Um, I don't think I really was that conscious of what I was doing. I, I just found a whole bunch of material that I thought... This seems right. I'll try this. And when, when I sat down to do it, it, it did just sort of happen. But, but I, 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 had, I had followed my instincts. Uh, rather than be totally rational about the way I put the play together, I just went with the feeling of it. And that's, that's what allowed me to, to, to like change gears during intermission. <laughs> So it's a two-act play. Um, when did that become clear to you that it was going to be in these two parts and that the first and second act would be radically different from each other? Well, originally I had strategized that because I didn't want to tell the whole darn story again, <laughs> that I would just end the first act before the death happened. Uh, I mean, when it came to actually writing the story, the... Just, just the whole mechanism of the story took over, and and I couldn't resist it. But, but my original strategy had meant that uh, rather than show the death, I was going to use the second act to show all those people who were chasing Almighty Voice, all the settlers, the farmers, the postmaster, the the Mounties, the soldiers, because I really wanted to th- know what they thought they were doing. Um, so I had this image in my head that, okay, all these white people characters, I work with Indians. My Indians will have to play white people. But then uh, we had done a lot of work in clowning at Neighbors, so I thought, okay, whiteface, that kind of works. Um, and it, it was just one of those images that stuck in my head. Um, and I just thought, like, whiteface, what's that about? And then I thought blackface, and that took me into the whole minstrel show tradition. And I realized that there was a North American theatrical tradition that implicitly racist, but also like very theatrical, very entertaining in a nasty sort of way. 
uh, I, I was quite taken by it. And I, I just thought, I want to do that. I want to play with that. I, um, the, 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 the resulting two-act play sort of uh, feels like it's a very North American creation. It does theater as, as, as it can be done in North America. I, I really felt like, like I, I did something for the new world. <laughs> now, you mentioned about how you, you first discovered this story, you know, when you were working at the Woodland Cultural Center, long before there was uh, such things as Google and those kind of things, of course. So a lot has changed since the last time, you know, this play was done with Janny in the, in, in, in the role. Uh, do, you, do you see a difference in terms of how the play might be received or uh, a difference in, in any other way between then and now? I think people are probably better educated just about the nature of theatre now because when I first did it, most people said I couldn't do it, I, that I broke a rule by, by changing styles midway through the play. Um, more pe people are more sophisticated now theatrically, uh, but probably more important, uh, there's been a, a lot of education going on. The TRC has happened. Uh, people in Canada no longer are blissfully ignorant of their own history, uh, and a lot of them want to know it. Uh, when the play was first and one of the reviews said, oh, this is only about stuff that will concern Native people. Uh, but now, now it's like people realize that if Canada is to have any moral standing in the world, they have to admit to their faults. It's a character-building exercise. <laughs> So, and how does that make you feel now to have this, this opportunity, have this done again, then and then and then now? I just feel very lucky that I've lived to see it happen. <laughs> it's a long time ago the play was first done, and and it it it, it was an era where you know with with results like that of confusion and ignorance, I just thought, okay, we've got a lot of work to do and. I mean, I spent a long time, for instance, working on a project with Oxford University Press where we just pointed out, look, there are all these Aboriginal writers in the country that you should be paying attention to. And, and I, you know, I, 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 I helped found Indigenous literature study. <laughs> That's great. So, you know, you mentioned um, how some of the things that have changed, you mentioned the TRC, and of course, most recently, uh, we're in this, the midst of this election right now, and what, behold, what comes out of the, the election, but this uh, Trudeau and blackface. So it, it kind of brings it full circle again once for you. I'm just wondering, what, what's, your, what's your take on that, and what do you think that will, that will add to this? Well, I, I, I guess maybe it, it can help white people reflect on their own culture. Because clearly that that's something that's still alive. That that sort of dressing up is, is still alive among people with with more money than sense. And I'm just wondering if if there's any other differences or or similarities you see within the original uh, time that this was performed some 30 years ago and and doing this now in today's society. Well, I the. The support I had from the theaters, the, the theaters that, that wanted to do the play, really committed to it, that, that they saw the theatricality of it, that, that it was like a work of art. 
and it, it was worth doing because of that. Um, even though they they were sometimes treading ground they weren't sure of, but but I I think that that has still been there that 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 pe- people have come to recognize that the the play is worthwhile. It, it 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 adds to the world we live in. Uh, Daniel, um, how is it for you um, working with Janie again? As she originally worked on this and and was uh, played the role of of the wife, Almighty Voice, and his wife, and now she's in the the helm of of directing it. Uh, what's that like for you to to be able to to have some familiarity with the people you're working with? I I was thrilled when I heard that she was going to do it. Um, I, I you know I, I I pay attention to other people's careers and as she's become known over the last decade as a director as well as an actor singer I, I just and and like like I, I've seen a lot of the work she's done recently um, she has a one woman storytelling piece called Prophecy Fog that is just so deep and funny I, I just you know she's a major artist. And I, I just feel lucky to, to have her on my side. Great. Now, uh, you mentioned career. And, of course, uh, your own career has, has managed to evolve over that time. You've written other pieces. And uh, I believe you're, you're still at the University of Ottawa. You have tenure at University of Ottawa. Do you not? Actually, I am retired <laughs> from Queen's University. Uh, I am now a professor emeritus from the... School of Music and Drama at Queen's University. Well, congratulations. Now, what does, what does that mean exactly? It means I get to keep my email. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, congratulations on all that, and of course all the success that you've had over, over the years. And congratulations on this play being done again. Um, I wish you all the best with this, and I hope it, it brings you renewed success and, and attention to the things that you originally wanted it to bring attention to. And uh, I'm just wondering, is there anything else you can think of that you feel is important to either mention for the audience, what they might take away from this, or, or what you wanted to bring or originally uh, thought in your process of, of writing this play? I guess I just want people to come and take the chance. It's it's it, it it's uh, what I, I think one of the descriptions of the play talked about about sort of sort of having a pleasant ride in the first act and then suddenly we turn the corner real sharp and <laughs> and head off and madly in another direction and enjoy it. It 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 can be a little disturbing, but it's also funny as heck. All right, great, uh, Wanishi. Thanks so much. Thanks, Dave. So uh, I'm here speaking with Janie Lazon, and she is the director of Almighty Voice. Uh, Janie, this is, um, I guess, a, a full circle for you in some ways. Uh, you you were in this play 30 years ago, I heard, and uh, now you're you. And I heard you also wanted to direct this. So this this must be quite exciting for you to to be able to be in the the seat of directing this play. Absolutely, and uh, I just want to start by saying that um, the the beautiful the beautiful title of the play is actually Almighty Voice and His Wife because it, she's she's actually uh, such an important component to the story. Um, so I, in 1991, Billy Marasti and I did this play, the world premiere at the Great Canadian Theatre Company, and I just fell in love with it then. It's just such a rich and beautiful piece of poetry and. Um, 
just an incredible way of telling the story, the way that Daniels uh, envisioned the theatricality of it. And I, I actually wanted to be in it again. I, I wanted another opportunity to um, to be in it. But then, you know, I just got kind of older and older and older, so that didn't happen. But I also knew that I wanted to direct it, and I, I did uh, uh, bring the play to Yvette Nolan at um, Native Earth and and say this is what I would I would I think you should do this play, and if and I would love to. I would love to direct it. Um, that never happened then, but I'm really excited to be doing it now. When when did you take it to Native Earth? How long ago was that? Oh boy, that would have been uh, 2005 or six ish, I think. Um, when I was really seriously trying to um, open up my directorial career, which has taken a while. <laughs> and congratulations, by the way. But listen, the thing is, though, 30 years is is a fair amount of time. And of course, a lot has changed in that time. So when you looked at this the script again, what jumped out at you that had changed between that time and now? Well, there's certainly a little bit more awareness about residential school, which certainly helps because then the context of the play has a wider base of knowledge for our non-Indigenous uh, artists, uh, p- uh, patrons who are coming to see it. Um, and so they're, they're a little bit more informed as well, which is really, really helpful. They've done some research, perhaps, maybe educa- educated themselves a bit more, which is v- also very helpful. Um, uh, so that's been great. Um, and then equally so, there's so many things that haven't changed. So then, what will people, what do you hope people will take away from this? What, what do you think that your eye is going to be able to bring to this play and that the audience can see? What I, what I realize also about myself, but um, as I look at the world and, and navigate this idea of reconciliation and what the crazy word is and what it really means, what's the, what's the action of it? I think it requires us all to look at our unconscious bias and what this play does is requires us to look deeper and deeper and deeper into our unconscious bias and and uh, that's why it's so brilliant that the second half is all done in vaudeville because that vehicle vaudeville was also a vehicle for um uh, for ha- for having conversations about politics and racism and but all under the guise of comedy and slapstick comedy so it allows us to look at that, laugh at it, and then realize what we're laughing at. So the other thing, of course, you have, uh, you have, have uh, Indigenous actors playing the roles, and it was originally as well with you and Billy Narasti. Um, but again, going back to that time change, what do you think these actors are seeing in this that perhaps you guys uh, weren't able to see at that time? Um, well, interestingly enough, there's actually more access to information, um, although, uh, yeah, because Google didn't <laughs> didn't exist back then. <laughs> it's so scary to say that. Oh, my God. Um, so we have w- way more access to research information, to um, archival information, which has been really, really helpful for me, especially as a director in terms of, um, you know, cre- creating the knowledge of, of just what, the, what that journey was that they went through. That's all been super helpful for all of us. Um, and what's also come more to light is the fact that, as, as uh, Daniel David Moses talks about, is that um, oftentimes in the um, Northwest Mounted Police reports, which is where most of the historical information has come from on Almighty Voice, not the story from the community, but the story from these reports, his wife is never mentioned, or she's mentioned as the girl 
and um, and again, I think it speaks to the fact that cross-referencing those reports, uh, the reason why we're not clear about what Almighty Voice really went through or the truth of the story is because even their internal reports conflicted each other. So they told the story that they wanted to tell at the time. And now that we have access to all of those, some of those reports anyway, um, I, I really took a look at what, uh, <laughs> how much they lied for themselves. Yes. So uh, it's a two-act play. The first and second act are very different from each other. Um, did you have a chance to speak with Daniel on this prior to, you know, or when you when you found out you'd be directing and and talk about it, taking an approach or, or or anything about that and how it had changed or in his mind or or what you might be bringing forward. Yeah, we did meet, which I think is really an essential part of, you know, if I can meet with the playwrights that, uh, and the plays that I'm directing, it's, it's, I think it's very helpful to kind of crawl inside their brain and think what they're thinking. And also to say, hey, is this, is this going to be okay for you, this idea that I have? Um, and what I loved about what Daniel was saying about the second act is that really the second act takes place here and now at this moment, and it gives us an opportunity um, to, again, uh, contemplate what that idea of reconciliation means. Let's look at the material. Let's really delve into what's continued to be said. The word chief is still used today, you know, and, and, we, and we, we, need, we need to take a closer look at that. So that was great. And then there was information that I, that I hadn't placed, which was really great to know that the second act actually takes place in, um, uh, in the residential school. So I, I, had, I knew that it took place in Duck Lake. I knew that it took place kind of in the community center, but I didn't realize that Daniel had actually envisioned it as the community center in the residential school, which gave me a, a whole new mind-blowing relationship to what's actually going on in the second act with White Girl. Okay, so uh, the other thing I'm wondering about is, is going back to when you were, you were playing the role, acting, and now directing, uh, what... What do you think that gives you uh, in terms of, of speaking to your actors? Uh, you know, things that you could want to, to, to help them see or help bring out that maybe you, you thought, I don't want to say missed, but, but you know, maybe, maybe you felt now you see these, these things differently or stronger. Yeah, absolutely. It's been such a, a great team effort with all of us. Like, I've brought forth um, my my intimate knowledge of the script and my um, all of this, this the discoveries that I made as an actor. Um, but oh, Michaela and, and uh, JD have come up with uh, like they've just got, well, how about this and how about that? I was like, I'd never thought of that, right? So we've made some amazing discoveries together by putting all of our thoughts together and uh, really analyzing and, and playing. We, we've been playing a lot on our feet. I think that's also really, really super important that the information comes from our bodies as well as our minds. If there's uh, one thing that you would like an audience to perhaps take away from, from seeing this play, uh, what comes to mind for you? I think it's about, um, it has to do with uh, our image. Uh, what I call images of Indians in the 1970s. There was a, um, a television series out of Seattle called Images of Indians, which then prompted a series of other movies and things like that. But really how our image has been so controlled by media, by colonialism, by government, 
um, I would like people to walk away with a different image of us, a different perception of us uh, as a people and our capacity for love and our capacity for, for feel, feeling deep and grand emotion and, and, for, um, and to give a better understanding of why Almighty Voice was fighting for the things that he was fighting for, his honor, his ancestors, his traditional ways, his wife, that those were that those were the reasons why he was f was running and fighting for the things that he believed in, not because he was bad and lazy and and a renegade, was because he was starving, <laughs> you know. And and uh, I just really appreciate another opportunity to paint that picture so that people can go, oh, that image that we think of when we think of uh, First Nations, Métis, and Inuit people is we we have to replace that with a different image. Jenny, thanks so much for this. And all the best and continued uh, success in the future. Always, Dave. It's always a pleasure. <laughs> all right. And uh, I'm now speaking with uh, one of the actors from Almighty Voice and his wife, the person who is actually playing the voice of Almighty Voice, and that is James Dallas Smith. He is an actor uh, hailing from Six Nations, and it's a pleasure to meet him and also uh, see a little bit of the play that we that we saw this morning and to have a chance to meet you in person, uh, hear a little bit about uh, your story, and uh, and how, uh, I guess, you know, it, it was really interesting. I'll call you JD because that's what everybody likes yes, to call please, you. Thank you. Uh, I really found it interesting, JD, that you 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 showed a lot of reverence for Daniel and his play when you were speaking about it prior to uh, getting into this this morning. Sure. Um, for me, it's I'm 45 years old now, so I've done this for 20, 25 years, and you come across a lot of different pieces of literature. And usually, when you approach a project, you think. I have a pretty clear idea of what this is and what I want to do with it. And I thought that was the case with Daniel's play and got here and realized there was just so many more facets that I hadn't thought through, I guess, uh, which is great. It's always pleasant to be surprised, but to be surprised so many times in the script, like, oh, there's, I didn't know that was there and, and that. And my journey is very similar to yours in that I, my cultural sort of discovery came later in my life and it filled a really big hole for me. So. To find his play at this time in my own life, and I've got a young son now, so I had a lot of questions myself, and this, it was great to sort of discover a lot of the answers going through this story. Can you give me an example of what you mean by that? Of course. Um, one of the best things I can take is I, uh, one of the, an elder I spoke with talked about, I've always struggled with self-worth issues, um, shame a little bit, sort of what I deserve, what I don't deserve. And an elder told me, you need to learn to set down that pain. It's not yours. If you have a family member that survived residential school, they may have accidentally taught you that, but it's not yours to carry anymore. And you have to learn to distinguish between which pain is yours and which pain isn't. And that's exactly what Almighty Voice does in the second act. He helps white girl rediscover herself. He's like, you, you've taken on so many more things that aren't yours. You need to set them down and, find, and discover what's ours again. So learning what was ours is, is new to me. Just, I don't know if it was the same for you, but growing up, I, I couldn't articulate the questions that I had. I just knew something was missing. And, and I think my father had a very difficult childhood uh, growing up on the reserve. And he didn't want to, now as a dad, I get that. You don't want to put your kids to any disadvantage or make them suffer. So this discovery through this play is it's a gentle way of of learning about my culture and also a lovely and heartbreaking way to learn about the strength of it as well 
but I guess that also gives you something that you can you can bring to it that other people wouldn't know or see. I hope so, yes. I mean, there is a lot more discovery for me than another actor, perhaps. Um, there's some differences, too, because this is a Cree man and I'm Mohawk, and of course you know that, that oh, you're all just indigenous people. <laughs> so, no, it's not quite like that. We do have some, some subdivisions. Uh, so there is an onus taking on that story because that's not entirely mine, but there is obviously much larger indigenous cultural things. And yeah, the, it's all, it helps in the second act as well because he has to figure out who he is before he can help her. He's like, who am I again? Didn't I die? What am I doing here? Why am I in this new place? So yeah, that resonates with me a lot because those are very recent questions for me. So it really, it's a lovely place to, I just I feel like this project's been handed to me at a beautiful time in my life and it's an incredible opportunity to work with these people and to have Daniel's words. I do revere them. I think they're beautiful and I can't wait to share this story. I've, I've not been this excited about something in my life, in my professional career. I just personally and professionally, it's been gratifying. So I'm really excited. And of course, you know that, that Janie was in this originally. I do. <laughs> some 30 years ago. Yes. So uh, what was that like to be able to work with a director who was in the, the original performance? I've, again, a first for me. Like, I've never had that experience. Like, and, and you don't want to abuse it. You want to sort of say, what did you do here last time? Because maybe that's not what Janie... She's had 25 years to say, you know, what? I, like, I know what I liked and what I didn't like about that production and what I'd like to do differently this time. So it was a finding a balance of what she was able to bring forward and listen to her. But of course we have questions. And Daniel was there for a lot of the original production as well. He was in the room sort of watching. So we've gotten to pick both of their brains and say, you know, we're a little confused about this. And it's great to have those voices because you can't ask Shakespeare or Moliere, what did you mean here anymore, right? You have to just interpret it. And there's a challenge and a joy to that. But to actually say, no, really, <laughs> really, what did you mean? It's great because sometimes, Daniel, the late, there's four or five different meanings that are possible and it depends on your interpretation. And he'll say, well, which, what do you think? Which of those do you think is most right? Uh, but the, the experience is invaluable and again, I've never had that resource before. It's wonderful to draw on, but Jenny has kind of very gently made it clear this is a different version. Um, it's informed by what I've learned, but to have that voice in the room and say, you know, I, I did this, this was changed, this is different now, this, this is the same as it always was. Uh, for her, listening to her talk about it, how the, the world wasn't ready to hear the play in 1991 when they did it, is astonishing to me, um, and I agree with her now in, in retrospect, uh, but I'm really glad that she's now helming the chance when the world maybe is a little better place to listen to this story, and that she has the delicate hands and heart to sort of share this story with everybody. Nicely said. Now, if there was one thing that you would hope that an audience would take away from this, from your perspective, what, what would that be? I think, I said it earlier when we were sort of talking in the larger group there, it's, it's the resilience of the people. I just, I love that, despite the fact that their, our culture has been decimated or dismantled, uh, the bits that have survived like beautiful wildflowers have begun to sort of grow and spread again and, and repopulate. And notice, as an actor now, an indigenous artist, I'm really noticing a renaissance is the wrong word, but there's, there's finally being space made for indigenous artists and indigenous stories and indigenous designers. Um, and it's wonderful to sort of be building this community. Uh, so 
So I think that's what I want us to see is the, the, the communities aren't wildly different. The stories aren't wildly different. It's just the things that we focus on within the stories. The way we tell the stories are different because we don't focus on the trauma and the tragedy. We focus on the resilience of these beautiful people, not that isn't it sad they lost these things. We want to celebrate. Isn't it amazing they're still here with what they have? Okay. Um, is there anything we haven't touched on that you feel is important that you want to share or you, you think that we need to know? I don't think so. Um, no, again, I, I can't express enough how unbelievable it is to work with Jenny as a director and an artist. I, I only discovered her came across, crossed paths with her a few years ago, and I thank my lucky stars for having done so. Truthfully, I sat next to her in a play workshop, and I shared my cough candies with her. And we were fast friends since then. And now every project we work together, I bring her some lemon drop cough candies to kick it off. But I, she's inspiring, she's energetic, she's passionate. She's also a, a really gifted performer, so she understands what she's asking of us. And actually, to your earlier question, that's a big thing. She understands what she's asking us to do, because we have to sing, dance, speak Cree, do vaudeville, do farcical comedy, do naturalistic text, have these huge monologues, these intimate moments, the specific choreography. I'm being stretched in a way I've never been stretched before in different directions, and she's so gentle and understanding, saying, I know I'm asking a lot of you, but you guys are doing wonderfully. So to be nurtured and supported like that, it's, it's a rarity in the theater industry, and perhaps another reason that I hope that indigenous theater continues to grow and thrive like it is now. JD, it was a pleasure to meet you and speak with you, and I wish you all the best, and thanks for taking the time to speak with me today. My absolute pleasure. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Nyawa. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Ottawa and Toronto, and of course, anywhere online, if you've downloaded the Radio Player Canada app, and just type in 106.5 Element FM or 95.7 Element FM, E-L-M-N-T-F-M. And you can listen anywhere across the country at your leisure. And also you can go to our website at elmntfm.ca and you can listen online through our uh, website. My guest in the studio is Margaret Grenier and she is with uh, a dancers group called the... Dancers of Damlahamet. Now, that's an interesting name, Margaret. Uh, can you tell me what that means and where that came from? Well, Damlahamet, uh, the literal translation is paradise, and it's the original city of the Gixan from northern BC. Ah, okay. Now, the Gixan, can you, can you tell me a little bit more about their actual territory? How much of an area does it cover when you say northern BC and that area? Okay. Um, well, the Gixan territory is along the Skeena River. Mm. Uh, so the mouth of the river is at the city of Prince Rupert, where mm. you find the Shimshan Nation. And we're just upriver. And the Gixan means people of the river of mist. Cool. What a great translation that is. It's just right there. So um, Margaret uh, is, is part of this dance work, uh, Min- Minowin. Yes. A Minowin meaning? Uh, Minowin means to clarify direction. So um, with this work, we were uh, looking at stories and um, also on how, with a contemporary context, we come to reinterpret and uh, transform within these processes as we move forward. Thank you for giving us those uh, brief descriptions of things uh, before we get into it. Now, uh, Margaret, if you don't mind... uh, 
Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Now, you are the, uh, the choreographer for this. Yes, um, I'm the choreographer. I'm also the artistic director with the company. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had the opportunity to grow up within the company. The company actually started back in the 1960s under the direction of my parents, uh, Ken and Margaret Harris. And I was the first generation uh, to grow up with dance once again because the work that they did was all uh, focused on revitalization after the potlatch ban had been lifted. Mm. Uh, wow. Um, I, I can't help but, but wonder what a great experience that must have been for you to be able to grow up in that environment, especially in the West Coast. <laughs> no, I, was, I always consider myself very fortunate. Um, also, just the work that they did and how it laid the foundation. And, and through that practice, I came to realize that it's so much more than an art form. It really has defined my identity. It has connected me to community, to language, to history, to story, and, of course, to the artistic practices. Now, of course, dance is is such an expressive uh, way of of showing and expressing things. Um, Dancers, much like any other art form, use their bodies to express and, 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 uh, and bring things to life and try to express uh, either feelings or, or, or something of, of that nature. Um, traditional dance is, of course, different than modern dance, uh, different from any other style of, of dance. Uh, how, how do you... Uh, did you study both traditional and contemporary or modern dance? Or um, My training is within uh, the traditional dance form, mm-hmm. um, on my father's side, my family is Gixan, and my mother is Cree, uh, originally from northern Manitoba, but mm. she moved to the West Coast, so that's where I grew up. Um, but it's only been within uh, the last, uh, well, less than 10 years that we have begun to work taking contemporary approaches within the work that we're doing. In this particular project, Minowin, as well as our um, the project that we did just prior to this, which was Flickr, uh, we worked with a mentor, Charles Coronel. He is um, he was like a collaborating director that helped us to work in bridging traditional with contemporary, and he is a Maori artist from New Zealand nice. with a lot of experience in training both in traditional and in contemporary. Mm. So we've established the name Minuin, and we've talked about the the uh, the dancers from uh, Damlahamid. Uh, as the group that is is part of this or this uh, presentation, now let me tell you a little bit more about that. So, uh, DanceWorks is actually presenting Minowin, and it's a stunning new multimedia work by the dancers of Damlahamid, uh, a celebrated Indigenous dance company from northwest coast of British Columbia, as we mentioned, choreographed by Margaret Grenier, and. Um, this uh, original production will be presented at Harborfront Center Theatre from October 18th and 19th, 2019. So it's uh, coming up in the next couple of days. Yes. And uh, Minuin integrates, this is very cool, narrative, movement, song, performance, and multimedia design connecting to landscapes from contemporary perspectives of customary indigenous dance forms. Minuin describes how we clarify direction as we recover and reinterpret the teachings that define and redefine who we are, access through story, dance, and song. Yeah. Now that sounds like quite a production. Um, I think you mentioned there are six performers. Yes. But you also have, obviously, because of the, the work of multimedia I- involvement, 
there are other people involved backstage and, and doing other things. Yes, yeah, we have a, a, a really wonderful production team that's working with us, and we worked with um, the designer Andy Morrow, who uh, home base has been Toronto for a number of years, and uh, we also worked with an interactive uh, media designer, our new media designer, Sammy Chen. So the uh, projection that's taking place on the dance floor is actually interacting uh, live with the dancers' movement. So um, the <laughs> the projection that's on the back is projection that has been established that uh, shows landscape, it shows Northwest Coast design, um, it's been beautifully developed by Andy Morrow, and then Sammy Jan worked with us so that we could uh, develop a way of seeing how the dancers' movement could then uh, interact with the floor projection. Okay, so you have multiple screens going yes. on with live performance. Um, it, it's, it sounds uh, very uh, intricate. Uh, you say that, that the, the visuals react in live with the performances. How, yes. how does that work? Um, well, it's using um, an infrared camera so okay. that um, as the dancers move, then the projection is affected <laughs> by the movement. And we wanted to do that um, not so much with the intention of how to use the technology, but how the projection could help support what the dancers were doing and relate the movement to the Northwest Coast design um, within our dance form. Uh, Song, dance, story, uh, visual design, all of our regalia and masks, that's always been something that has been um, interconnected in the way that we share dance. And so we really are using these other elements to sort of help the audience to make those connections. Now, masks, of course, we, we're all familiar with the West Coast and the, the wonderful masks. Um, some of them uh, are multiple masks. Some of them open up and do things, and they actually uh, have moving parts. Uh, yes. They're intricate in themselves and yes. quite a piece of work. Uh, are they the kind of masks we're talking about? Um, we have throughout the piece, because the piece is intended to uh, draw from... Um, our origin stories. And in this piece, we're actually working within uh, the Gixan dance, but also we worked with an elder, a Cree elder, Lawrence Trottier, to bring together elements of uh, Cree narrative as well. So, um, and that's to reflect our family's history, where um, in my family, on my father's side, we're Gixan, and on my mother's side, we're Cree. So when we look at some of that Part of the production will see the masks and the regalia replicating a more traditional uh, style. But then throughout the piece, um, because we also are looking at the themes on how we come back to these stories and also um, the way of how we are going to be moving forward with these stories, uh, some of the regalia as well as the dance movement then becomes more contemporary. Mm. So um, it's, it's a progression that takes place throughout the dance piece. When you mentioned uh, infrared camera, um, I thought of, wow, uh, there's a piece of, of technology that you're incorporating into the show that works uh, in, in a live uh, way with the performers by by reading what they're doing, and I, I thought of well, well, the software going on in the background. So there's another side of this that is interesting. Um, but I'm wondering, what is it that attracted you to that in terms of 
looking at your history, looking at your uh, your your cre- uh, creation stories, and in and and thinking that there is this new technology that could help you, uh, either, you know, expand on that. Um, well, in part, I think it is that, um, as I mentioned, like. Or and also as you mentioned in terms of the articulated transformation masks, like there's always been innovation within our art form, and that has always been connected to how we present and share dance. Um, and I think also it was because we are working with the collaborator Sammy Chen, and he had such an open heart and open mind when it came to working with us on this project and really finding a way that was supportive. Um, when we first began the conversation, we were looking at one section at the piece in which we have a a brushing ceremony, which is a dance that clears the space. And so the dancers are moving with cedar branches, and as the cedar branches move, the movement of the branches itself um, is interacting with the dance floor. Uh, But then that concept just grew, and now it's it's throughout the whole piece that we see Sammy's work. Mm. How long is the show? It's about 70 minutes. Okay, and, and I guess there's no intermission? There's no intermission, no. Okay. Yes. What, what, what would you, how would you describe uh, for people that don't have any clue about what they're <laughs> going to see? Uh, um, what would you, how would you describe to them in a few words what they might be in, uh, in for? Um, well, I think that with Minowin, uh, it's a very large-scale work for our company. So uh, we've... We've worked to not only develop this dance work, but also um, all of the regalia that has been integrated into it. Uh, Rebecca Baker-Crenier did a lot of that. And so there's a beautiful button blanket regalia, um, beautiful shawl work, um, also um, an integration of uh, just the landscapes and that we see um, in our northern territories, both the Gixan and the Cree. So visually, it's a very <laughs> rich experience. Um, but I think for me, also, this piece is something that's very dear to my heart because I think that in the process of working on it, it really made me reflect on, you know, throughout history, we've carried... Uh, stories through dance and these stories are about times when we come to this place of imbalance and we move through transformation and we redefine ourselves and find a way to move forward and so while also looking at um, our origin stories with this piece we're also looking at where we are now and I truly believe that um, you know, we are at a place where we see so much going on in our communities. And um, I think it's a very hopeful piece. It's a piece about resiliency and a piece about how we can um, collectively find a way forward. Have you been uh, working with the people involved with this performance? Uh, if, do you have a troupe? I mean, are these sort of standard dancers that you've been working with for a while? Yes. Uh, our uh, company, uh, because we're, we're something that has been carrying on, uh, as I mentioned, since the work that my parents did, we've maintained that family focus. So I will be performing in the piece. Mm. My son and daughter <laughs> will be performing nice. in the piece. And the dancers that we have with us are dancers that have worked with our companies uh, for a number of years. Um, it's more than just... Um, 
putting together a dance piece and sharing it uh, or contracting, you know, artists to work with us. It's something that we we work from from a family perspective with the intention of, you know, how is this going to contribute to to the next generation and how how is this work going to continue to how we move forward? Mm, okay. Uh, just to let you know, you're listening to Element FM, and this is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest is the artistic director and also the choreographer for the for Minuin, which is going to be on at the Harbour Front Centre on October 18th and 19th of this month. And uh, that the dance troupe is Dancers of Damlahamid, and uh, Margaret Grenier is the uh, Grenier. Grenier? <laughs> Grenier. Grenier. I keep messing that up. <laughs> Margaret Grenier. I'm yes. sorry about that. And uh, that's who's with me in the studio as we talk about the, this uh, presentation of Minuin, uh, coming from the west coast of British Columbia and the Gixan na- Nation. And um, how long have you been working on putting Minuin together? Uh, Minuin has been, like, we've been working intensively over the last uh, two years on this project. I think it's something that was seeded before that in terms of the ideas and concepts that we were hoping to visualize, but we received a large creation fund support from the National Arts Centre as well as a number of other uh, support uh, through Can Dance and Dance Victoria as well. Um, so it was a it was a very large project. We've been working very intensively on it for the last couple of years. <laughs> Has your uh, dance uh, organization been uh, this way before? Have you brought other performances to Ontario or... Uh, this is our second time at okay. DanceWorks. We were here um, a couple of years ago. Uh, we presented Flickr, uh, which was our, our recent production at that time. Flickr, what was that about? Um, Flickr is a, a piece that also um, carries multimedia elements in it, and it was a story of a young man's journey um, to find himself and to find his potential. And once you, you're, you've done the, the uh, performance here uh, at the Harbourfront Centre on the 18th and 19th, where, does it, where do you go from there? Uh, well, we've been on tour since September. Okay. <laughs> so we started in Ottawa. Mm-hmm. Uh, Toronto is our final tour stop. And then we'll be finally bringing our work home in November to share at the Colch. And, and we'll be, be happy to have <laughs> made it through this long journey. Uh, where is that going to be? In Vancouver. It'll be at the Colch. At yes. Vancouver. Okay. Yes. And... Um, so once it's completed, I'm interested, now that you've, said, you've mentioned Flickr, which was a previous presentation that you did, uh, once, once you've done something and you're going to move on to something else, what, what happens with those projects? Do they just get put on the shelf? Do they ever, are they ever able to be remounted? Uh, you know, and I guess what I'm thinking of technically, right. uh, because of things that you may or may not have available to you uh, after that. Um, I think our company takes a little bit of a different approach in that uh, for us, um, we don't really put uh, things behind ourselves once Mm. we start to work on something new. Everything is really building upon what we've already done. Um, Our work is not only to create a specific dance piece, but also to continue to move forward within our dance form. Um, The work that the previous generation did really established dance once again, and we are always continuing to develop and create and just really build upon what that foundational knowledge is for us. Okay. Mentioning and talking about tradition and the fact that you've come from two different cultures, being that that, that is the Gixan as well as the Cree. Yes. Uh, two different nations, two different approaches, uh, two mm-hmm. different cultures. 
Um, how do you, uh, and what did you incorporate from both those uh, um, styles? Uh, yes. if, if there is, uh, yes. use that to, to, uh, <laughs> yes. to the presentation. Um, well, there are different, uh, there are in some places, I think, um, the two different styles become a little bit more integrated, but then there are aspects of the piece that are clearly Northwest Coast um, Indigenous dance, uh, or clearly uh, Cree. And um, what we did was, was more with uh, working with the elders. Uh, the two elders that we worked with were Lawrence Trottier um, and Betsy Lomax, uh, working within the language. So the language is a very big part of what is shared. And then um, seeing on when the stories connected and interacted, um, and then also seeing when we could sort of um, really focus on elements of the story. So it does change uh, within the piece. How would you, if you could, uh, describe the differences of West Coast and Cree performances? Okay, the, um, the Northwest Coast is the mask dance and the button blanket regalia, um, and often uh, shared uh, uh, as a telling of oral history. Um, we are uh, since the since the revitalization within this dance form, working to add our own stories and our own contemporary perspectives to that work, um, the Cree within uh, my family's training in history um, is very much uh, similar to. Uh, or closely connected to um, what we, d we describe as powwows. We have the the fancy shawls in this uh, piece, um, but also uh, th we have a number of stories and a number of ways of articulating dance that have been passed down uh, through our elders. And um, for us, I think... Uh, We've always practiced these two dance forms um, separately, and that's certainly the way that I grew up. But I think the reason why we've connected them within this dance piece is because um, both of these uh, perspectives, although different, they're, you know, they carry our family's identity. And um, I think it's important that we begin to um, see how these stories are connected and see how our histories are connected. I was wondering about similarities and differences between the two cultures mm -hmm. that you may have seen in either in creation stories or mm -hmm. um, or just in the cultures themselves as you've grown up. Uh, do you do you see many of those in terms of similarities or differences? Um, I think certainly in terms of the values and the the worldview, um, a strong value and connection. Uh, to story, to uh, ancestral knowledge. Um, the, the dances in themselves are a way to connect to this. They're a way to, um, you know, they, they help us in the present day because they help us to remember how to live our lives accordingly and how to, um, what I always call is like the, the healing authority in the dances is something that helps us to move forward in a good way or to live our life in a good way. And um, I think that for me, like that is the essence of the dance practice. It's to cultivate that and to to um, deepen our, our understanding in that. So I think that uh, through sharing this work, um, 
we're able to then share that as well with our audiences. Um, I think in terms of um, aesthetic, um, I think that's where you see the differences in the culture, the differences in the regalia, the differences in the songs, the differences in the in the dance style. But I think it's the underlying essence um, where I find the the really mm. strong connections. Mm. Nicely said. Is there is there anything else about this performance that we haven't touched on that you think is important to mention that you would like people to know? Um, I think that for myself. Um, Minowin is, uh, it's a significant piece for me. Um, when I grew up with the opportunity to grow up with song and dance, um, I didn't really see the work that my parents did at that time because I was a young person. It was just something that I, it was part of me. And uh, when I got older, I began to really realize, you know, the vision that they had, the hope that they had, the, 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 even the artistic risks that they took. I mean, presenting dance publicly was a huge change <laughs> that took place at that time. To bring dance back was a huge uh, undertaking. And I think that uh, for myself, um, with this project, I am... I've had to really challenge myself because each generation, we have our own things that we come up against. Um, we have our own uh, ways to, to find our way through that. And I think that through dance, we do find a path of resiliency. Um, I think we do find a way to articulate ourselves. And um, I think that it's only by hearing everyone's unique voices, all, all artists, that we start to be able to see a collective whole. We start to be able to bridge those gaps. And, and I do believe that it's once we start to piece those uh, pieces together that we're, we're going to find a way to move forward. Mm, great. <laughs> well, listen, it's been wonderful having you here. And I really okay. appreciate you taking the time to come in and speak with us about Minowin and the performance coming up at the Harbour Front Centre Thursday, uh, October the 18th and 19th, correct? Yes. And uh, theatre, rather, Harbour Front Centre Theatre on October 18th and 19th. So that would be uh, Friday and Saturday yes. of Thank this you. week. Uh, Minowin once again integrates narrative, movement, song, performance, and multimedia design connecting to landscapes from contemporary perspectives to customary Indigenous dance forms. And that is being performed at DanceWorks uh, as they present Minowin and by the dancers of Dam Lahamid. And uh, that's a West Coast uh, dance troupe. And we've been talking with Margaret Grenier, and she is the uh, choreographer as well as the artistic director, so wearing a couple of hats in the performance. And wonderful to have her here and to hear about the performance and to hear about her, this family-grown uh, organization that uh, has come and been around for a long time with her parents initiating this some time ago. Once again, uh, Chimigwech and Nyala for coming in and speaking with us today. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and uh, Nyala for listening. We hope you will tune in next time here on Element FM, 106.5 Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa.